you could join us as well. So, you ever heard this advice before? Just let it go. Just let it go, right? And people say it's so nonchalant, so easy. Like, yeah, just, we all do this. Just let it go. It sounds simple, but it's not. It's really not. I mean, we, we all struggle with this. It's frustratingly difficult sometimes to just let things go. I had a situation a few months ago. I was talking with a family member, uh, and they said something that I, I felt was a little obtuse, if I can be honest with you. It frustrated me. It was stuck in my craw, if I could go back to my southern Illinois roots. And I don't know where the craw is located. It's got to be somewhere near the part of the brain that lets you sleep at night, though, because uh, that wasn't happening. I was just frustrated, and I would think about it and get frustrated again. I woke up the next morning, think about it, get frustrated, like, that's just rich coming from them, right? And I knew it wasn't productive, and I knew it wasn't beneficial, but for some reason, I just couldn't let it go. It's hard, and I know it's not just me. I know it's a, a universal thing because I talk to you, and you share stories. Well, there was a, a church person, uh, it was a few weeks ago, they were in a church group, somebody said something that felt was unfair towards them, and they were asking, how, how do I handle that? How do we move past that? How do I address it? And so on, those questions. And my advice was, honestly, just let it roll. You know it's not true. God knows it's not true. And honestly... You can't have mature conversations with immature people. It just doesn't work out. You can bring it up, but you're just going to be beating your head against the wall. So my advice is just forgive and let it go. There I was giving the advice, knowing how hard it really is to do that. There's another church person came, had a family situation where years and years ago, somebody just kind of cut themselves off from the family, didn't explain it, just, you know, you're all dead to me, and then had come back into the picture recently without explanation and just wanted to pick up where things left off and not really talk about the mess that had happened. And, and the person was coming to me saying, how, what do I do with that? Like, they haven't apologized. Like, how do I forgive that? And, you know, those kinds of questions, reasonable questions. And again, my advice was... You know, I'm not really sure bringing it up and expecting an apology is going to have the kind of result you're hoping for. Like, it might just reopen old wounds. You got to kind of weigh, is it worth keeping the family together moving forward, or do we want to rehash the past? And, you know, it's hard, but it might be best to just sort of forgive and move on. Let it go. Once again, there's the advice. But it's hard to do. And you're thinking of your own situation right now that you've been in, where you've had that confrontation, you've had that conversation, you've had that offense, and, and you know, hey, I should let it go, but it's hard to do. This is thing, something we wrestle with. But why? Thought, think about that. Like, why is it so hard to just forgive, move on, and let stuff go? That's what we're talking about this morning. And to do that, we're going to be looking at the book of Matthew chapter 26. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up to Matthew 26 Follow along there. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind or download the FCC Monmouth app to your mobile device. Tap the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner, and you'll find our notes, our outline, and our passages pulled open, ready for you to follow along with, take some notes on, and get the most out of this time this morning. So why is it hard to just let things go? There's a lot of reasons for this. Obviously, we're not going to narrow it down in, in 30 minutes. But I do think there's a few things that we, we universally struggle with. And one of those things I think is just like instinct. It almost seems like hostility is a natural response to our triggers. And it's not just you and I, like our culture today, we see that in our text this morning. And so it leads me to believe this is a human nature thing that we're wrestling against. 
Uh, we can look at our passage, Matthew chapter 26. This happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Jesus has gone there to pray on the night he's going to be arrested. And actually, this is the arrest account. So let's pick up, pick up on verse 47. It says, While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. So going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him on the cheeks, by the way. And Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. We'll pause there. So, like we said, this is the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is being arrested. Judas, one of the twelve disciples, has sold everybody out in exchange for 30 pieces of silver. These guards come to arrest Jesus. And this passage is about him. And we're going to be focusing on him a lot in just a minute. But before we do, I want to look at somebody else in this passage. I want to look at that unnamed servant, or that unnamed disciple, who drew his sword and lopped off somebody's ear. Now, we read this story in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're very discreet they just say, an apostle, a disciple of Jesus. They don't want to name it. Probably this person's not real proud, not the best moment in their repertoire. You know, I cut somebody's ear off. John shares no such restraint. Peter, it was Peter. Peter did it. And honestly, what we read about Peter in the Gospels, that's not really hard to imagine. This is, this is pretty easy to see. The question is, why does Peter do this? And that's not really a hard question to answer either. You know, we like to pretend like this scenario is, is so foreign to us, it's 2,000 years ago and whatnot, but honestly, a lot of the emotion involved, we deal with every day. Peter's in a scenario where he's being betrayed. We think of Judas betraying Jesus, and certainly he did, but we got to remember that, like, Judas also betrayed all of the other apostles as well. This is somebody that they had spent the last potentially three years with. It was their roommate, it was their friend, it was their co-worker, it was somebody who sat at the feet of Jesus and learned with him, and, and all of a sudden he's just kind of turning all of that over and saying, forget you guys, I want my money. Like Peter felt betrayed. And then we've got the fear aspect of it, because Jesus is Peter's Lord, it's his rabbi, it, it's his friend, honestly. And here is Judas bringing all of these people to arrest Jesus and take him off to jail. That's, well, he's probably scared for his friend. I think we would probably be as well. And then there's the defensive component of it, because we've got to remember that the Garden of Gethsemane, while not like on the outskirts of town in the boonies, it was kind of secluded. It's late. It's late enough that all of the, the disciples had fallen asleep a few times, so they're drowsy. Uh, it's dark. Uh, all of a sudden, this group of men, we don't know how many, but this group of men armed with clubs and swords and torches come out of the shadows to arrest Jesus, who is unarmed, and it's just him and Peter, James, and John. Like, that's an intimidating scenario. If you were in a, like a major city and you were walking down the street and this group of people started to follow you and then you turned down an alleyway and they followed you into the alley, you'd probably be sweating bullets too. The defense mechanism starts going to kick in, you know, you start making that fist, holding your keys in between your fingers just in case, like that's going to do something. But like, those are the, the, the mechanisms that we, we have in place. We start to feel all these things. These are our triggers. The same things that Peter is triggered by, we are triggered by fear, insecurity, betrayal, offense, 
uh, these the threats of, of, of maybe our, our safety, our, our reputation, whatever, when we feel threatened. These are the things, the triggers in our lives. And when they're tripped, we respond almost instinctually without thinking. And oftentimes that response is one of hostility. We see it in Peter. All of these things happen, whoosh, plop, you know? And we do that too. Maybe we respond with verbal jabs. Maybe we respond by raising our voice. Maybe we respond with insults. Maybe we respond with biting comments. Maybe we respond with, with physical pushbacks. It's, it's hostility in some form or fashion. It just seems so natural. We don't have to think about it. My family and I went on vacation this past summer. Uh, we went to Wisconsin Dells. Lots of fun things for our boys to do. They're four and seven. We thought it'd be a good idea to take them putt-putt golfing. We were wrong. Um, you know, they had fun, but we were just concerned they were going to hit somebody with their clubs swinging around, and, like, it's busy, and it's late, and they're, when it gets late, they just go wild. And so it was, it was a thing. We got them back to the car, and it's time to go home. And all I want to do is get back to the hotel and rest, right? And it's a busy putt-putt place. It's not like just some rinky-dink thing. There's like eight different courses here, and it all empties out onto this busy kind of main strip kind of a road. And so there's a lot of people trying to get out of the parking lot, and it's congested, but everybody's being pretty civil, except that guy. And you know, you know the guy, right? It's the one guy that thinks none of the rules apply to him. And so he's, you know, trying to go around people. He may have even been going the wrong way. I don't remember. But what I do remember very clearly is we're sitting in line, and he starts to honk at me. I'm just sitting in line like everybody else. But apparently that was inconvenient for him. So he starts honking at me. I don't even think. I just react. And I start honking back at him, making the meanest face that this can muster because I just drugged two little boys through nine holes of agony and I'm not in the mood, right? Like, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not having it. We react. We push back. But here's the thing. We, we can look at Peter's response. We can look at our responses in our lives and the way we retaliate at times. And it seems reasonable. It seems natural. It seems instinctual. But the Bible has a different name for it. It's called the flesh. And the flesh is that part of our being that reacts in, in passions and in cravings. The, the flesh is responsible for our lusts, passion. The flesh is responsible for greed, wanting to consume and to covet and to have and to possess. The flesh is responsible for wanting to protect our pride, wanting to protect our security, our station, our reputation, the perception of others, our pride, all of that. That's all the flesh. It's the part of us that if we were wild animals would serve us immensely well because it's all about serving ourselves. The problem is we're not wild animals. We're people. And even to say that isn't the full story. If we were to read through the Old Testament and Paul sums it up very nicely in the book of 2 Corinthians, anyone who is in Christ Jesus is a new creation. We're not just human beings. We are people who belong to the kingdom of God who have been indwelt with God's very spirit, a new nature, a nature that doesn't call us to walk according to the old ways of the flesh and our passions and our hungers and our cravings, but a way that calls us to walk in righteousness and in justice with this new ethic that is appropriate for God's people in his kingdom. It's an ethic that we see Jesus, not Peter, put on display in this story. If we read just the next verse, Jesus is going to tell Peter, put your sword away. Anyone who draws the sword dies by the sword. It's sort of a proverbial way of saying hostilities only produce more hostility. It doesn't actually solve anything. 
And this isn't a new ethic that Jesus is laying on us here at the end either. This is actually like the capstone of a prolonged teaching that he's been giving to us throughout his ministry. We can rewind the clock and go back towards the beginning. Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. It's maybe one of the largest bodies of teaching that we have of Jesus in written history. We call it the greatest sermon ever written. So many great nuggets of wisdom that we latch onto in this sermon. One of those is, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? Is it peacemaking when I retaliate with insult for insult? Is it it peacemaking when I match somebody's level and aggression with my voice or my volume? Is it peacemaking? Somebody shoves me, I shove them back. Somebody cuts me off, I lay on the horn and mean mug them, right? Is that peacemaking? No. That's not going to end hostilities. It's kind of like two kids on the playground, really, or I, I literally lived this this morning as I was walking out the door. Two boys in my house. One kid hits the first kid. What does the second kid do? He hits back. Do the two kids then shake hands and go, well, Matt, I see your points. We both exchanged hostilities. Now let's have peace. Does that happen? Has that ever happened in the history of humanity? No. Kid A hits kid B. Kid B hits kid A. Kid A balls up his fist and swings harder at kid B. Dad comes in and says, everybody go to your rooms. We're going to sort this out. We got to go to church in an hour, guys. Dang it. It wasn't that extreme, but you get the point. It happens. Hostilities do not produce peace. What hostilities perpetuate are brokenness. And Jesus didn't die to perpetuate brokenness. He was broken to perpetuate peace. And that's what he calls us to. More teachings from Jesus. If somebody strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek as well. It's where we get our phrase, turn the other cheek. We teach this to our kids. We apparently as a society value this teaching. Well, what does it mean to turn the other cheek? Somebody calls me a name, I call them a name too. Somebody wrongs me, well then I go and I wrong them back and they get theirs and I get mine. Is that what this means to turn the other cheek? No. All that does is perpetuate hostilities. That's not what we see in this picture. We see Jesus willingly embrace a different kind of ethic and a different kind of path. One that kind of lets it go in maybe the biggest and grandest way. So that's one challenge we have is this this fleshly nature that we wrestle with. But that's not the full story because there's other things that complicate this idea of just letting it go as well. Some of it's mental. It's a mindset that we have. Sometimes we are tempted to misunderstand restraint as weakness. And it shows up in a lot of different ways. Maybe you don't use that terminology, but, but I'm sure we've had these mental conversations. They cheated me. They wronged me. They offended me. They insulted me. They insert offense here. And I can't let them get away with that. I can't let them think that's right. I can't let them think that they are right. I can't let them think that that is true. I can't let them think that they've got one over on me. I can't let them think that I'm too weak to respond. I've got to show them that this is true. This is right. I am right. I am strong. And again, maybe we use different terminologies, but that's essentially the conversation we have. We view restraint sometimes as a weakness or vulnerability. And that could not be more of a lie. I want to draw our attention to Jesus, how he responds in this scenario. And I want you to just pay attention to his restraint. This is verse 52. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. 
For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. You think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? So here's the scenario. Peter pulls a sword, lops some guy's ear off. Jesus says, no, put it away. And I got to think that Jesus assumes the best of Peter here. Peter probably trying to defend Jesus, come to his aid. He's obviously outnumbered, so Peter thinks, oh, I'll even the odds and step in. That's kind of Peter's MO. It's his mentality. And yet Jesus says, don't. Do you honestly think I can't handle this? Do you think that I am defenseless here? Do you think I can't call 12 legions of angels to come in and end this in a moment? And, and maybe that's a weird phrase for us to think about. I just, I want to, this is not what Jesus was getting at, but just so we understand the weight of his statement. What is 12 legions of angels? Well, a Roman legion, depending on the point of history you're looking at, you're looking at roughly 5,000 soldiers. So 12 legions, that'd be about 60,000 angels. If you read the book of 2 Kings, chapter 19, one angel of the Lord lays waste 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in the course of about 8 to 12 hours over the night. So you do your angel math, and you plug in the equation, and what you come up with is a little over 11 million soldiers dispensed of in about eight hours. All right? And that, again, that's not Jesus' point. That's just kind of taking it super specific so we can appreciate the kind of statement Jesus is saying here. The kind of point that he's trying to make is, Peter, I am anything but defenseless. I am anything but weak. And yet he chooses to hand himself over to these authorities anyway. He chooses to practice restraint and to let the offenses go. And there's a reason for that. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But right now, I just want to focus on the point. Restraint is anything but weak. Oftentimes, it requires more strength to tame our flesh, to restrain our desires, to restrain those passions that become inflamed, to jump to our defense and to clear our name and to stand up for ourselves. It requires a tremendous amount of strength to tell ourselves no and tame the beast within. And we see this and we recognize it in a lot of different scenarios. Let's just look at, at social or, or relational scenarios. Let's say you've got a man who's a father and his children disrespect him. They insult him. They treat him poorly. Obviously, that is going to trigger him as a man and as a father. He is going to want to react. His flesh is going to become hungry for vengeance or for strength or whatever. And so let's say he doesn't have restraint. Let's say that he wants to show his disrespectful children how strong he is. And so he doesn't have restraint in the way that he hits them. And he doesn't have restraint in the way that he uses his words to tear them bit from bit. How strong is that guy, right? We don't call that strength. We call that abuse. And we don't applaud that man. We criticize, we prosecute, and we agree that it is a, a posture of shame. But if we take that same scenario, a father who is insulted, who is belittled, who is betrayed, who, whatever, by his children, his triggered, his flesh boils up. He desires to, to lash out with his passions, but he does practice restraint. And instead of indulging his, his physicality or indulging his, his verbal desires, he offers a measured response an appropriate response. We don't call that guy weak. We call him a good dad. Because rather than abuse, he chose discipline, which is beneficial and appropriate and proper. We recognize the difference and the distinction readily in so many different contexts that restraint is not weakness. And we need to recognize it within ourselves as well. 
restraining ourselves, restraining our flesh, that desire to get yours tit for tat, insult for insult, evil for evil, restraining that requires a tremendous amount of strength. That's what Jesus shows us here. So we've got this issue of the flesh wrestling against us. We've got this issue of a mindset wrestling against us. It seems kind of like the deck is stacked against us if we have hope of overcoming and kind of letting stuff go. But there is some hope here. And it actually is the churchiest answer that you could ever hope for. But it's true. If we want to learn to let things go, then we need to let our faith grow. When our faith grows, we learn how to let things go. Now, like I said, it's a very churchy answer, but I mean something very specific by that. Sometimes when we talk about faith, we talk about it in terms of belief. We accept certain ideas to be true. Uh, We accept that there is a God, an all-seeing, all-knowing God. We accept, we believe that that God is found in the person of Jesus Christ, who died on a cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We accept and we believe that Jesus was buried in a tomb, but on the third day was raised back to life. These are ideas, beliefs that we accept. And faith, is that is a huge part of it. You will not have Christian faith if you don't accept those ideas. But there's also a more active component to faith that we might call trust. And trust is not just a feeling. Trust is something that impacts our decision-making. It's something that impacts our responses. It's something that impacts our, our worldview or our perspective on things. We trust that God is good. We trust that he is a righteous judge. We trust that he sees all things. We don't just accept these ideas to be true. When we trust them, it's going to impact the way that we live. And we see that in our passage as well. Jesus, if we back up to verse 54, here's how he responds to all of this. He says, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and and you didn't arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Twice in that brief exchange, Jesus references the word of God. One time he calls it scriptures. One time he calls it the words of the prophets. But he's essentially saying the same thing. God's plan must be fulfilled. And the only way for that to happen is if I submit myself to this unjust prosecution. He is putting an insane amount of trust in this idea that God's plan is good and righteous and true and worthwhile. He doesn't just accept that. He's submitting himself to it. That's trust. That's an insane level of trust. And yet that's what he does. And the trust, by the way, it doesn't stop here in the garden. We see this trust continue on to the very end. Some of the last words of Jesus demonstrate this insane level of trust in the idea that God is good and righteous and faithful. His last words in Matthew, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words aren't original to Jesus. He's quoting Psalm 22. I don't know if you've ever read Psalm 22. If you read it, you would swear Jesus wrote it himself, even though it was written about 2,000 years earlier. It's such a a visceral experience of crucifixion, despite the fact that David wrote it. But anyway, Psalm 22, it's a psalm that oscillates between two competing truths. One truth is that the author suffers immensely right here in the present. It it just, the language drips of agony. And yet the other truth is that God is faithful and delivers his people. 
He did it in the Old Testament. He did it in the nation of Israel. He did it in the author's own time frame. And so there's these competing ideas. And the author of Psalm 22, he oscillates between these two things. My life stinks right now, but I know God is faithful and God delivers his people. But it hurts so bad. But I know that God is true. And it's a wrestling match within him. Psalm 22 ends with celebration. Final line. He has done it. He delivered the author. Saved him. And God proved himself faithful and true. This is the psalm that Jesus is not singing, but reciting as his life is ebbing away. Trust that somehow God will be faithful, that he will do it. Book of Luke, last words of Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's tempting sometimes to read that as like a fare thee well, I'm off to heaven, see you guys later. Not at all. Psalm 31. Again, not original to Jesus. He's reciting this psalm that once again... It's about this faith, this trust that God is faithful, that he is just, and that he delivers his people. And you know what? Jesus was right in singing those words and saying those words because God did deliver his faithful servant. Kind of heard in the middle, but on the third day after that cross, God raised Jesus back to life, never to die again, and he was vindicated in that moment. His accusers were silenced and proven wrong. The accusations were proved false. The testimonies were demonstrated to be lies. And Jesus raised from the dead is a living testimony that everything he said and claimed to be was true and right and good. The judge judged justly. That's the trust, the faith that Jesus begins to demonstrate from the garden to the cross and beyond. And none of this is lost on Peter. Because remember Peter? Beginning of the text, pulled out the sword, lopped a guy's ear off. Peter was the guy that lashed out in passions of the flesh. He was the guy that, that responded instinctually to the triggers in his life instead of letting it go and following these teachings of Jesus that he's been listening to for the last three years. But Peter has witnessed something. He witnessed the trust of Jesus and how he refused to retaliate and let himself be arrested. He witnessed the faithfulness of Jesus when he held on to that faith, even to the point of death on a cross. And he witnessed the reward of that faithfulness when Jesus was raised back to life. Peter saw firsthand that we can trust that God is good, that he is a righteous judge, that he sees all things and sets it right. And that was a profound transformational realization for Peter. That's why we read his letter, which is written a few decades after this, called 1 Peter. He's writing to a group of churches where people are beginning to be insulted and oppressed, suffering unjust treatment, where their triggers are beginning to be tripped, where they are afraid, where they are pushed into a corner. And Peter's words to them are not, pull out your swords and start lopping off ears. Peter's words are, do not... Trade insult for insult. Do not respond evil for evil. For three chapters in this six-chapter letter, Peter encourages the church, tame the flesh and follow the example of Jesus. He writes this in chapter 2, verse 19, For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. That doesn't mean, oh, I'm a Christian, so this is just what I'm supposed to do. We have this realization that there is a judge, that he sees all things, that he judges justly, and we live trusting those things. That is commendable. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? 
That's just what you get. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. And to this you were called. Here's why. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. It's not that we just live this way because we're supposed to, because we're Christians. It's because Jesus laid out a model of this for us. He showed us what it means to be a peacemaker. He showed us what it means to turn the other cheek. He showed us through his death and resurrection that God really is worth trusting absolutely. More specifically, Peter says, I just flipped past my notes there. There we go. More specifically, he says, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, here we go, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was able to overcome all of this temptation and overcome all of this injustice, not because he was just so super duper, but because he trusted. He had faith that God is good. He sees all things. He judges justly. And when you and I share in that trust and in that kind of a faith, all of a sudden this pressure to respond with hostilities is kind of alleviated. If somebody insults me and wrongfully accuses me, calls me names, whatever, they offend me, who cares? The judge sees. He'll settle all things in the end. I don't really need to worry about defending myself. Somebody cheats me out of something. Man, it's going to, again, stick in my crawl, right? It'll be frustrating. I don't need to worry about retaliation or getting my own. The judge sees. He judges justly. It will be set right in the end. Whenever we really do trust in these truths that we have this faith in, all of a sudden... I don't really need to exchange insult for insult, evil for evil, tit for tat. I don't need to respond and, and humor my flesh. Instead, I'm free to pursue peacemaking. I'm free to turn the other cheek. I'm free to try to look like the man on the cross whom I claim to follow. I read an interesting study. It's kind of funny. It was by the University of North Carolina. They interviewed 400 convicted burglars. And they asked them a series of questions. One of those questions was about home security systems. Of these 400 men, 83% of them said, oh yeah, I absolutely check for a home security system before I break into a house. And of those, 63%, so about half of the overall pool, said if they suspected a security system, they just moved on. They let it go and went to a different target. It's about 50%. And when I think about that, I can't help but feel that those, those burglars have a kind of faith. They trust that there is somebody watching and they trust that if there's somebody watching, justice will prevail. So they let it go and they move on. And it sounds weird, but as I thought about this, I wondered, do we have the faith of burglars? Do we trust that there's somebody watching? And do we trust that if he's watching, justice will prevail? If we do, let it go. Move on. Pursue peace. Pursue grace. Pursue the things that the judge calls us to. And that's what I would challenge us with this week. Because this week, you're going to have your toe stepped on. Somebody is going to say something that annoys you, that frustrates you, that is unfair, that is obtuse, that is offensive. Somebody's going to say something that challenges a deep conviction of yours, and you're going to want to respond with aggression and hostilities. 
You're going to feel this flesh begin to crave and hunger. This animal begin to claw its way out of your heart and want to lash out in so many different ways. And I want to challenge us to kill it. To have enough faith to trust somebody is watching. And the judge who judged justly in the case of Jesus will judge justly in your cases as well. That the judge who did not leave the faithfulness of Jesus to die in that tomb with him will not let your faithfulness be overlooked either. Have the faith of burglars. Trust that there is a just judge who sees all things. And turn the other cheek. Let it go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today and that there is hope, there is power beyond just our will to overcome this challenge. I think we all recognize that grace is a better alternative to aggression. So help us to believe that enough to try it, to extend it, to trust you to take care of things in a way that's far more sufficient than we could handle. This week, as we face challenges of our flesh and our will, I pray that you would dwell richly within us and through your spirit and through your word, minister to us, remind us of this truth and this example of Jesus. Help us to follow the words that Peter left us, not respond with insult for insult, or exchange evil for evil, but to follow the example of the man on the cross. No insult be found in our mouth, no retaliation, no aggression, no hostilities be reciprocated. Instead, let us trust the judge who judges justly. And it's in your name we pray these things. Amen.